the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Now I want to read the first six verses here. We've already covered the first two, but just to remind us of the context of our passage. It says in Ephesians 5 and verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no man deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the children, the sons, excuse me, the sons of disobedience. In October of 2013, a man wrote an article concerning diagnostics of why there are so few young preachers today in the pipeline coming up through our Christian colleges and churches. I won't read the whole article, but I do find it significant that he introduces this article with this statistic. There are now more full-time senior pastors who are over the age of 65 than under the age of 40. There are more full-time senior pastors who are over the age of 65, I'm not there, than those under the age of 40. That's pretty significant, isn't it? And he goes on and he tries to give, at least from his perspective, some of the reasons why these things have occurred. In a previous article, he did mention a financial obstacle, and that was of student loan debt. And that's true even in Christian colleges. Christian colleges... um, maybe in light of a public university, are very cheap, but they're still very, very expensive. And you as parents who have sent students off to Christian colleges know that it does take a significant amount of sacrifice to send your children to a Christian college. But the second thing that he mentions here, he says, is perhaps the more serious issue. And he says, young people are not entering the ministry because they have guilty consciences. He goes on and gives some further insight in that, but I want to read to you this paragraph that he did write. He says, It has been my privilege, in addition to pastoring my church, to serve on the boards of three different Christian ministries. Recently, the director of one of these ministries shared with me an application he received from a ministerial student. The application included questions regarding character and morals. One of the questions was this. Have you ever viewed pornography? And if so, how long ago? The applicant's answer was, yes, just days prior to my filling out this application. (laughs) 
The writer says, I suppose I should have at least been encouraged by the young man's honesty. It had been real easy not to answer that, right? But the director of this ministry informed me that the overwhelming majority of the applicants confess to recent and even habitual viewing of pornography. As they discussed this issue, the director said to the writer of this blog, quote, If our Christian colleges expelled all the young men who look at pornography, it would be a girls-only school. Unquote. Is that shocking to you? He writes, his answer was not intended to be sarcastic. The reality is, is that young Christian men, including men training for the gospel ministry, are plagued by this now ubiquitous scent of pornography. And folks, that's not happening just out there. This man would be within our circles. He's talking about our schools, our churches. I suppose that my, the thing that I have had to deal with more in my some 30 to 40 years of ministry is this particular sin of fornication. And this is what our text is talking about. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, as I mentioned last week, are the linchpin between walking in love in our communication to walking in love in our behavior. Immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, all deal with our behavior, doesn't it? And folks, this is behavior that can enter into the house of God. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, as we mentioned last week, Jesus spoke this to His people. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for who? One another. Immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting are unloving. I think it's very simple for us to pull this out of the text, right? It's unloving. <clears throat> now the world considers it loving. The world considers the breaking of the commandment to not commit fornication. The wording in the Old Testament is adultery. The world considers that foolishness. And folks, many of our churches, and I'm talking very broadly here, many of our churches today are growing more and more accommodating to this sin. And of course, if you think about it, you can see the pressures, right? If that sin's going on in the church and you try to shepherd it, you try to deal with it, and the person doesn't want to be dealt with, they may what? They may leave, and does that impact the church? Well, sure, it does impact the church. A lot of pressure in this area. 
Folks, the Bible's pretty clear about this. Would you say that? Christians, having been loved by the Lord, are to love as He loved. He gave no coarse jesting. He had no silly talk. He had no greed or covetousness. He definitely had no impurity or fornication in any aspect of his life. Would you agree with that? And neither are we. We're to walk in love as He loved. And the invisible God and His invisible love became visible in Christ Jesus. His love was voluntary. It was unto God. It was substitutionary. It was self-denying. And He died for the church. He gave His life for the church. Not so that we can all engage in the behaviors of our former manner of life. And folks, when we think about Christ, as I mentioned last week, this type of love is really the ultimate expression of love to God, isn't it? And it is the ultimate expression of love to my fellow man. I hope that you would not say in your heart that for me to commit fornication with another woman or another man is the expression of my loving them. But the world says it is. Does everybody see what we're talking about here? This is the culture in which we're living. And folks, the culture presses into our homes and into our churches. What we're seeing here is that this type of walk is a fragrant aroma, verse 2, to God. This is true worship. This is true love. And God approves and accepts this type of sacrifice. Now folks, when you, when you hear the word sacrifice, you should be hearing the word death. You should be hearing the word painful. This is His type of love. And folks, if what I've described to you is true worship and true love, then that means there is a false type of worship and a false type of love. The worship and love of fallen man is the fruit of the flesh. Our communication, the way we think in our hearts, And our behavior, if it is reflecting the flesh, it is not of God. Now the reason why I put thought into the passage is because of many passages, but I'll quote just one. Because all of our sin originates in our heart and in our mind. And you know this passage, Jesus said, Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, has, you know how it ends? Has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. This is what the Lord is looking at is our inner man. Now folks, the Bible says in verse 3 that these sins are not to be named among you. Now this doesn't mean that there's to be no speech about it. 
Paul's speaking about it, isn't he? But what he means by that is that no one of us is to be identified by others by those labels. No one of us in the church should be identified by these types of labels. And folks, if if cruciform love is approved and acceptable, then what Paul's talking about here is unacceptable. If cruciform love is a fragrant aroma, then these types of things are a stench in the eyes of God. Now you'll note in the passage that these sins bookend our text. In verse 3, you have immorality or impurity or greed. In verse 5, you have immoral or impure or covetous man. And then, of course, the result of that is that this is evidence of the sons of disobedience. So in my mind of understanding, since those two things bookend this section, then more than likely, and I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but more than likely the filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting are referring to these same sins. And folks, the gravity of this is, is that if a person is characterized by these behaviors, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You'll see that here in verse 5. This you know with certainty. Do you know this with certainty? That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ The way I take that is, I take that to mean presently. In other words, we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. So I take the phrase kingdom of Christ to mean presently. And then the kingdom of God I take to mean the future kingdom. When in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ, having gotten the kingdom, delivers the kingdom to God so that God, the Father, He may be all in what? All in all. Does everybody see what I'm saying there? Now, of course, it can refer to the same thing because Christ is God, isn't He? (laughs) Okay, But I do think that there is a distinction here. Not only do people who are characterized, I didn't say identified, I said characterized by these behaviors have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, but they are under the wrath of God. And you'll see that in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, what things? Immorality, impurity, covetousness, or greed... Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of who? Disobedience. They are under the wrath of God, and God calls them not children of light, but sons of disobedience. And folks, that phrase is here in Ephesians 5 and verse 6, but if you look back into chapter 4 and you look at verse 17, when Paul begins this section, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to what? To sensuality. For the practice of every kind of impurity with 
greediness. There's our three words, right? This is the way we formally walked. And of course, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, he talks about that among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of children of wrath. There's the sons of disobedience. There's the wrath of God upon these people. Now that shows the gravity of these sins. And through the years, I've tried to explore why, why these particular sins have the forefront in our New Testament. And to be honest with you, I've not come to any landing on why that is. But I do know that in almost every epistle, there's warning against fornication. So what is he telling us not to engage in, not to be identified by, and definitely not to be characterized by? Well, number one, he mentions in verse 3, immorality or fornication. Fornication refers to all forms of sexual transgressions. And I'm not being exhaustive in this list, but it would include incest. It would include prostitution. And folks, when I say prostitution, please just don't think of the woman by the night the red lights in the red light district of a city. A prostitute is someone who uses her body for gain. And it doesn't always have to be money involved with that. Incest, prostitution, pornography. That includes photography, pictures. It includes video. It includes written pornography. Are there books written pornography? The answer to that is yes. They're written in such a way to generate an image in your mind. It also includes adultery, homosexuality, and unspeakable bestiality and other forms that would fall in this category. Now I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and I want to talk about this sin as a warning for us but also as an encouragement to those who battle this sin and I think we all have to battle this sin both man and woman and child, to try to strengthen you not to be led astray into its enslavement. There is a rising sentiment in our culture that says something along these lines. And I'm using this word on purpose. Okay, I'm not trying to be offensive. Sex is a natural part of human life. So I'm just going to look at it like an appetite. Like you would have an appetite for food. Does everybody know what it means to have an appetite for food? Okay. Someone may ask you after the service, what would you like to eat? Okay. If you're starving to death, you say anything. <laughs> but most of us, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think you're starving. But if someone asks you, what would you like to eat? You, 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 you think through... And I don't know how you do this. Maybe you register with your taste buds. And you say to yourself, well, I'd like to have fish today. 
That's an appetite, right? Our culture is viewing sexuality as a mere body function and appetite. And just like you would indulge your appetite in the selection of your food, you can indulge your appetite for, for immorality, for sex, in the same fashion. It's evident in our culture by the number of young people living together prior to marriage. I hardly meet a young person, and I'm speaking outside the church, I hardly meet a young person who isn't living with someone. And folks, they have absolutely no conscience about this at all. None. That's the scary part. To them, this is as natural as food. Well, brethren, this type of attitude is not foreign to our New Testament. Aren't you thankful the Bible has answers to all this? And I want to read an extended section here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, where Paul is addressing issues within the Corinthian church. And this particular issue was is that some of the men in that church were actually visiting the idol temples and engaging with the the idol prostitutes that were there in that temple. And he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, uh, that's that's the the um, the woman side of a homosexual relationship. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And don't you love verse eleven? Such were. Don't you like that? Such were some of you. Well, what changed? They were born again. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And then Paul goes, and he's actually going to give to you the argument that, the, that these people were using. Verses 12 and 13. All things are lawful for me. <laughs> Not under the law, right? So everything's lawful for me. But Paul says, not all things are what? Not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me. Do you hear what they're saying? All things are lawful for me. Verse 12. But I will not be mastered by anything. Now look at chapter 6, verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Now, folks, is that true? Let's just stop and think about this. Is food for your stomach? Yes or no? All right. And your stomach was created to process food. And at the end of the day, when we get our new glorified bodies, our old bodies will be done away with. Right? And so that is their argument to be able to engage by saying to, to some measure that, you know, sexuality is just like an appetite. So I have this need, I have this urge, I have this lust, I have this desire, and this is part of me, and so I don't have to deny that. And then Paul says to them in verse 13, Yet the body is not for immorality. The body is not for immorality, but for who? The Lord. And the Lord is for the body. The Lord is not against our body. 
And our body was created to be for the Lord. And then he talks in verse 14, Now God has not only raised up the Lord, and he was raised up bodily, wasn't he? The Lord's for the body. And he will also raise us up through his power. Verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies, not just your spirit, your bodies are members of who? Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. So the one who joins himself to the Lord is one what with him? We're one spirit with him. But our bodies are for the Lord, and our bodies are members of Him also. So look at verse 18. Flee immorality. Flee this. And folks, here is something unique about our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, meaning it really... The body's not really engaged in this sense. But the immoral man sins against who? His own body. (coughs) Does everybody see that? He sins against his own body because he's using his body in a way that God never created it to be used. God never created your body to be used for fornication. Never. And folks, this is why he goes on in verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own? In other words, you don't get to do with your body whatever you want to do. Verse 20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God where? In your body, because that's the subject. The subject is the body. It's not just glorify God in your spirit and in your soul, but also in your your body, which is what our scripture reading agreed with, right? We're to know how to possess our vessel, our body. Now listen to this. In honor. We're to honor our bodies and in sanctification. We're commanded to flee fornication. Not only is this a sin against God, it's a sin against yourself. And folks, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, and this is absolutely frightening to even consider, that harlotry, all forms of sexual immorality, in the last day will be Everywhere. The harlot that is sitting on the beast in her cup are the abominations of immorality and the kings of the earth drink of that cup. And what's happening in the world today? Is fornication decreasing or increasing? It's even becoming the law of the land. Now, God can certainly intervene, and I pray that He does, and bring forth reviving. But this is the culture that our future brethren are going to be living out the Christian life in. A culture of violence, as in the days of Noah, where there is rampant violence, homosexuality, and other sins that are unmentionable in the house of God. This is where the world's going. And so, brethren, does it not make sense that we should not be identified by that term? The second one is impurity. And basically, this refers to all forms of uncleanness, I think, in this context, dealing with our bodies. And just like with fornication, we won't take time to look at the passage in Matthew, it originates out of the heart of man. 
And we read in our scripture reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 7 that God has not called us, meaning called us to salvation, for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. And it is, it was our former manner of life. We actually read this in the book of Ephesians where I showed you that that was the way we used to walk. And folks, if we would take the time, and let's do that, let's turn to Romans 1. Because this frightening cycle that occurs when God brings judgment upon people who walk like the Gentiles, it begins with they clearly see God in the creation. But they reject that. And the Bible says in verse 21 that they become futile in their their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Now look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust, where is this coming from? Their hearts to impurity. Everybody see that? To impurity. Now later on, at the end of this chapter, he's going to talk about greed controlling men's hearts. But folks, giving over someone, which is what God does in His wrath, to give over someone to the impurities, to the lusts that are flowing out of His heart, means that those lusts enslave them. It enslaves them. It's like a drug. It's like an addiction in their lives. When someone begins in the arena of pornography, for example, they have to have greater and greater abominations of pornography to to achieve the same tantalizing fulfillment of their lust. It never just stops at point A. It's a drug that they have. And folks, if they continue, then God ends up giving them over, verse 26 of Romans 1, to degrading passions. In other words, where where is fornication going to take you? It can take you this far to homosexuality. and an enslavement to that sin. And folks, Romans chapter 6 says that to the same degree that you were enslaved, given over to impurity, now give yourself to righteousness. Be enslaved to righteousness. So you have fornication as we go back to the book of Ephesians. You have impurity, and you have greed or covetousness. And this too originates in the heart. And I just want to read to you Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is the Ten Commandments that you'll be very familiar with. In verse 21, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Do you see the immorality there? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, <clears throat> or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, if we were going to put that in modern day terminology, because I don't think that you have a flock of ox in your backyard. 
And if you did, I wouldn't covet it. <laughs> to put it in modern day vernacular, this is what greed involves with. Our possessions. Our spouses. When I read his field or his male servant or his female servant, I, I see employment. When I read ox or donkey, I hear things like equipment to do your job. These are things that control, greed controls the heart of the unregenerate. And folks, that commandment was the commandment that slew the Apostle Paul. That he came to an understanding that there was no way he could obey that commandment because the more he tried to obey it, the more he, the more he coveted the more greed that came out of his heart. And of course, he turned to Christ, and I'm so thankful he did that. And folks, as we go back, if you went to the passage, but if you're still here in Ephesians, this type of man is an idolater. One, one of our children always says, please pray that for all the idolaters. <laughs> that they wouldn't be idolaters. And I say amen to that, don't you? This is idolatry. Why is it idolatry? I mean, I don't think, I don't think that you're bowing down to this idol out there. Why does, why does God call a covetous man or a greedy person an idolater? Because, folks, Anything you set your affection upon that is over the Lord is an idol in your life. And I'll give you an example. Adam and Eve were in the garden. Perfect garden. Perfect place. They were not sinful, inherently sinful. Total liberty. God told them they could eat of every tree but one. Now think about that. Every tree but one. Would that satisfy you? Or in the back of your mind will you be saying, I wonder what that tree tastes like. So what happened? Well, folks, there was all kinds of sins that were involved in this. But they looked on that tree and they evaluated it externally. It was a good tree. Well, folks, God said that everything He created was good. Was the tree good? It was good. He looked on all the creation and said, Behold, it's very good. The tree was good. What made the tree off limits? God. God said, Don't partake of this tree. So can God tell you not to partake in something you perceive as good? Yes. And folks, they looked at that tree and they saw it was good for food and it was to be desired to make one wise. You hear the word desire. This was coming out of them. With their eye, they saw it externally. It triggered something. And they took the fruit of that tree. We don't know if it was an apple. Okay, so you can still eat apples at the grocery store. Okay. They took the fruit of that tree and they what? They ate it. 
Folks, they were not idolatry in the sense that they were putting something above God and what He said. And it just wasn't like an occasional thing. They were focused on this thing. They had to have that thing. And folks, it became enslaving for them and all of mankind fell because of that. And you and I have to deal with that. Then there's filthiness of speech. Our translation says filthiness, silly speech, coarse speech. All of these Greek terms are only used here in our New Testament, so it's very difficult to try to get exactly the definition of these terms. But again, I do think we can walk away with this. These are sins reflected in our speech. And I think that they are terms that are describing something that we do with impurity and fornication and greed. The phrase filthiness refers to all forms of shameful speech. There are speech that are shameful. This would be the opposite of wholesome speech that we've already talked about. Then there's silly speech. This doesn't mean that you can't tell a joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? You know. What is this talking about? It's jesting about sin. And folks, this is what Hollywood does. They're called comedians. There are Christian comedians who do this. They take holy things and make a joke out of it. Then there's coarse speech. This is risque, off-color type of speech. And what, what's being done here is that someone will say something and you will take what they say and you will twist it to make it evil. You're turning an innocent phrase and you're turning it towards sin. And in this case, I do think it has to do with sins of immorality. Hollywood does do this, do they not? And folks, these things are not to be named among us. Now, do Christians sin in these areas? You know the answer to that is yes. We all have to deal with the lust of our own heart to whatever measure and to whatever degree. But we have to deal with it, don't we? We don't entertain it. We don't try to justify it from the Scripture. We don't try to say, well, all things are lawful. We, we don't do that. We don't say, well, I'm under grace. I'm not under the law. You know, you're just trying to stifle my happiness. You know, we've got to deal with this. This is not to be named among the saints. Why? It is not fitting. Verse 3. It is not fitting. Excuse me, verse 4. And folks, Paul was very zealous about this. We don't have time to turn there. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 21, Paul wrote this at the end of this book. I'm afraid. Did Paul have fears? I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. That's an interesting phrase. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of their impurity, their immorality, and sensuality, now hear this, which they are practicing. And folks, when you, when you have to confront this with someone, you're going to have to 
humble yourself to do this. It's not going to be something that you're happy to be doing. Someone says, well, I'm just nervous doing this. Well, of course you are. (laughs) Paul had to humiliate himself. He had to humble himself to mourn over this. These things are to be alien to our lifestyle. These sins are never to become characteristic. The church, if you look in Ephesians 5 and look down here, we are not to be partakers, verse 7, in these sins. We are, verse 11, not to participate in these sins. These are unfruitful deeds of darkness. And folks, I want to repeat again, it's one thing for a professing believer to singularly fall in this area versus a regular, repeated, settled behavior in this. And folks, this is very sober in the day in which we live in. If we'd been living in the 1940s or 50s, there, there, people would say, of course. You're not, you're not to be an adulterer. These sins were shameful back then. Now they're celebrated as if some badge of honor that you get to do this. Now folks, thankfully, there is a little nugget in here that doesn't allow us to end on a downer. What is the distinctive mark of walking in cruciform love. And that mark is given to us in verse 4. But rather, instead of filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting and these other sins, but rather, this is what we want to hear with our mouths, giving of what? Giving of thanks. Now folks, again, isn't it self-evident that if I'm giving thanks, I'm probably not walking in greed? And if I'm giving thanks, I'm probably not walking in covetousness? Because I'm what? I'm thankful. And some of you have come to me and you have bemoaned. You have mourned in your spirit over the lack of thankfulness of people in our nation. It is probably the epidemic in our nation. A lack of giving of thanks. Now very quickly, and in fact I, I apologize, I did not even finish my list. I tried to go through the whole New Testament and kind of come up with some kind of little systematic doctrine of thanksgiving. And it, it, it's so full. Um, years ago, my wife <clears throat> read a monograph by a man who did a dissertation, and then he put it in a book on gratitude in the Bible. <laughs> and it was long. And it was profitable, but it was so long, it was dry at times. You just had to kind of plow through it so that you would be thankful for the book. <laughs> okay. But let me give to you, and these are in no particular order, things you won't be able to write them down, but just listen. When we give thanks, we are to give it to God. It's entirely appropriate for us to give honor and thankfulness to whom it's due. But the ultimate expression of our thanksgiving is to God. He's the giver of all things. The foundation of our gratitude is our faith. And even when we are watchful in prayer, that means we are alert to our particular walk and needs before the Lord. Even when we're watchful in prayer, it says we are to abound in the giving of thanks. When grace abounds in our life, 
When that is truly abounding in your life, the outflow of that will be the giving of thanks. When we are anxious or have care over anything in our lives, we are with prayer and supplication to make our request be made known unto God with thanksgiving. So even when we're anxious and have care and are burdened down, and even when we pray, we're to be giving of thanks. And I do think I need to kind of just give a footnote here. You're not necessarily thanking God for the, the care and the anxiety. You're thanking God for what He's going to do in the midst of this. The grace He's going to give to you, the answer to prayer He's going to give to you, the looking to Him in all these things, or maybe even the removal of that anxiety and that care. Truly, we can be thankful for that, can't we? You could even be thankful for the outcome of this in your own life. 1 Timothy says that in church, prayer, request, and the giving of thanks are to be given for all men. All men. We're to be giving thanks when we have the Lord's table. We're to be giving thanks when we receive healing. We're to be giving thanks when we have answered prayer. We're to even be giving thanks when we arrive at our destination. When Paul arrived and he's just outside the outskirts of Rome, he gives thanks to God for God strengthening him and bringing him to that destination. In multiple passages, we're to be giving thanks for the church of God. We're to give thanks for people who have risked their life for the gospel's sake. We're to be giving thanks when God supplies our need. We're to be giving thanks when uh, on our salvation. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18 just says this, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. It is the distinctive mark of a heart that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 verse 20, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And folks, do you know where thanksgiving is used the most? Before you eat. There are more instances in our New Testament of the giving of thanks before you eat than perhaps any of the other ones that I just gave to you. I hope you give thanks before you eat. I'm talking about sincere thanks from the heart. I hope you never think I'll always have food in my cupboard. We'll always be able to go to the store and get whatever we want. Because we can think that. Say, well, what do you want to eat? Well, we don't, we don't have this in the house. Well, we'll just stop at the store and get it. Isn't that a gift from God that you can do that? We ought to give thanks for it. Because if we don't, He might take it away. George Mueller, when he ran that orphanage, and he did it for the glory of God, and he would never make his needs known. And there are some believers who don't do that, and then there are other believers that think it's scriptural to make their needs known. Frankly, both are fine. <laughs> okay, But George Mueller would not make his needs known. <clears throat> and... They were completely out of food, out of money, everything. They were, they were destitute. You know what George Mueller did? He had all the, all the orphans come and sit around the table. There's no food. <laughs> and he bowed his head and gave God thanks. Now this doesn't happen all the time, but as he ended that prayer, there was a knock on the door and there was a person with food. And we say, wow, that's really great. Well, it doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes He gives you the grace to go without. That's still God answering your prayer that you can be thankful for. Folks, this is to be what we're to be identified by. People should be able to save you as a Christian. 
you are characterized by a spirit of thanksgiving to God. And that thanksgiving flows out of a heart of cruciform love to the one who saved us and redeemed us, who gave His life for us. And being thankful is a battle. If I were to list all the things that could rob you of your gratitude, the ocean could not contain them. But it is a spirit that I have come to value more and more and more. That those times when my heart is filled with His Spirit, giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have really come to relish that as a treasure from God. Because your newspaper isn't going to be thankful. And your social media is not going to be thankful. And looking at the reviews on all the products, you hear mostly negative reviews. But may we be characterized by that gratitude in our own heart. Our Father, thank You.